Hello, hello, and welcome to Maeve in America. This show is immigration stories told by the people who've lived them. And today we're talking about the intersection of art and politics and immigration. I'm super curious about what role immigration has in comedy and in music and just in creativity generally. So we're going to hear from a selection of people like this incredible Iranian poet who lives in LA and the Vietnamese Madonna. But I know what you're thinking. Wait a second. It's St. Patrick's week. What about the Irish Madonna? Our great St. Patrick. I know, I know. Don't worry. I catch up with the hilarious Chris O'Dowd to get the lowdown. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. He was a Welshman who did very little. And he's famous for banning snakes from Ireland in a country that has never had snakes. <laughs> but first, in studio right now, I've got a wonderful comedian. She's the host of the hilarious political podcast, Fake the Nation. She's a filmmaker and also a writer. Her book, How to Make White People Laugh, came out last year and it's brilliant. Welcome to the studio, Nagin Farsad. Nah, hello. <laughs> Sorry to make you be your own hype woman. <laughs> How'd I do in that role? It was good. Start screaming when you hear it. First of all, I want to talk about your work. Oh, okay. Yes. I'm a big fan of yours and have been for a long time. Thank you. That's Ever so since sweet. I saw uh, The Muslims Are Coming in 2012. So 13. Oh, 2000. Yeah. I got an early Don't copy. Don't age me. 2013. Yeah. Right. God. But then I looked you up online to say, you know, how would I introduce you for this show? And a lot of it is like social justice comedian Nagin Farsad, mm-hmm. which I think is a good description. Originally, people started calling me like a political comic. Yeah. And that made me feel weird because mm-hmm. it's not... I'm. I think like the stuff that I do, you know, is not necessarily partisan. Although I think we all know where I am on it. A you huge know. Trump support. <laughs> Famously. <laughs> Famously a Trump support. I'm on the liberal side of things or yeah. whatever. So there's there's no question of that. The stuff I'm talking about isn't partisan. It's about justice and there's no sides to justice. Even uh the honorable president Donnie Twimp can't mm-hmm. look at like the word social justice and be like, no, I'm against it. What are the things that you care about that you like talk about in your work? Well, so I am not an immigrant. I'm Mm -hmm. a first generation. You know, in the beginning, especially, it's just like I would do jokes about my parents. And I always thought it was interesting uh, that just hearing like stuff about my parents sort of humanize people and like talking about how my mom is obsessed with like Brangelina's divorce. (laughs) Because otherwise, the narrative that the average person is seeing is on Fox News where these, you know, where Middle Eastern people are shown as dusty, dirty people carrying AK-47s like all the time Um, and women are like just sort of floating through the desert Uh, you can't they're not even walking they're literally just floating Um, and wait that's not your mother (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I think one of the things I'm trying to do with my work as a Muslim and as an Iranian American is just humanize these people to uh, Americans who had no idea that we're like terrible at bowling you know (laughs) and that that's like terrible at bowling the Iranian American story. Um, (laughs) You and some other Muslim comics went around America and did stand up shows and like chatted to the communities that you that you met there. Yeah. And that movie was called The Muslims Are Coming and let's hear like a little clip from it. Let's do it. You want to play Name That Religion? We're playing this game. Name That Religion. We're going to read a quote. 
-hmm. And you're going to tell us if it was Old Testament, New Testament, or the Quran. Okay. All right. Here we go. Which holy book stipulates that a girl who does not bleed on her wedding night should be stoned to death? Old Testament, New Testament, the Quran. Oh, it doesn't bleed on her first night? Uh, the Quran. I'll say Quran. Quran. That was a very quick answer, and why do you, um, why did you answer that way? Because the women, the women are subject, you know, subjective to men. It is the Old Testament! Deuteronomy, dude! Even listening to it, I'm cringing. And I'm also like, maybe I would have guessed the crap. I don't know what right, I would have right. guessed. Yeah, yeah. But I feel judgmental of those people. Right. So, but throughout the movie, you were like very good natured. Because I want people not to be embarrassed by what <laughs> they don't know. My goal was always to go out there and build a bridge. And people ask me, why do you call yourself Iranian American? Why can't you just call yourself American American? And I think that's a really legitimate question for someone who's been here for generations upon generations, who doesn't even know what it feels like to have grown up in a household where you speak different languages or where you eat different foods, where you're a different religion, it doesn't make sense to them that I should call myself Iranian American. So it's a legitimate question. And I want to be able to like help them see why it is that I might do that. You know, what did you say to them? Well, I said, you know, I, I said, well, I, I just I grew up with my parents. Uh, we didn't we speak we spoke two other languages at home, neither of which were English. <laughs> uh, it's no big deal. Trilingual by birth is fine. It's Jesus. no big deal. If I had anything close to two languages, I would never stop. <laughs> talking about it. I also speak French. It's guys, oh let's, let's stop talking about how many languages I speak. It's embarrassing to me. Um, I'm going to edit out where you said you can speak French. It's not fair. <laughs> um, no, but I, it's hard for me to just disregard that entire life, which is big and rich and vibrant mm -hmm. in my mind. And it plays out in everything that I do. You know, I've been to Iran many, many times and mm -hmm. we used to go a lot, but my mm -hmm stand-up was broadcast on some sort of satellite network over there. Um, you know, my aunt called and was like, now it's dangerous for her to come here. I mean, like, I'm the, you know, I'm five foot three and a half inches and I dress like a cartoon character. Like, what am I going to be on a list You're for? You're using cuteness as your defense. <laughs> You're very cute. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It just seems ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Every week, every week for my mom, I get the call, which is like, okay, this time, seriously, for real, this time... Trump is now crazy. Like, mm. she calls me every week, be like, Trump's crazy. And then this time he's gotten crazier, you yeah. know, and she's like, and now, so no, now you cannot tell anybody that you are Muslim, you know? And so like, mm. she's like, don't, uh, do not say publicly. And I'm like, lady, that cat's out of the bag. <laughs> um, also, I don't think it helps, right, for mm. anyone to, 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 for their voices to be, uh, lowered by this, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? If anything, the, everyone should say that they're Muslim. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Maeve, you should be Muslim. I am in a camp of refugees with a number on my chest and a sandwich in my hand. That's Majid Nafisi, an Iranian poet who lives in L.A., who also happens to be blind. Now, when I interviewed him, he told me about his first wife, who was actually executed in Iran during the revolution. They were students and they were part of the revolt. And a year later, he actually left Iran for good. And then he eventually wound up as an asylum seeker here in the U.S. And I wanted to know, like, how his creativity was informed by um, his experience. So have a listen to this. 
So can I ask you about why why you write poetry? I mean, aside from the money. <laughs> no, money is not part of it. <laughs> you, that's you're, you're a comedian. Okay. <laughs> you know, when that was executed on January uh, 7, 1982, a week after that, or maybe a few days after that, we went to... Uh, Albor's Mountain in Tehran with some of my friends kind of, you know, to um, have a remembrance for uh, Ezzat. So we did that um, for Ezzat. And when I got back home, all of a sudden, after eight years about Ezzat, and that's how poetry started for me, uh, Maeve, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, that's the core of poetry, you know, because I wanted to somehow to uh, revive Ezzat, I wanted to take her revenge. I wanted to tell, you know, her killers that, no, she's not dead. And the only thing that I had was poetry. That was the only means of creativity that I had. And so I wanted to ask you about that, how creativity is a form of speaking truth to power in a way. I think probably everything I do is is you know, informed by the broader social and political context. It mm-hmm. it feels really, especially now, it just feels everything's very overwhelming and kind of like it needs a release, you know. And Iranians love poetry. You know, if you ask my dad a simple question about like, um, how many minutes are you supposed to hard boil an egg? Like there's a sonnet about it. You know yeah. what I mean? And I just that was beautiful. But what are you saying? Um, and it's that's the Iranian way. And so I, I think that's the other thing that. You know, I don't just to sound cheesy for a moment here. Mm-hmm. I feel a little bit of like, <laughs> like the spirit of the poets flowing through us all genetically. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, totally. I visited Iran last year, and literally the taxi drivers would like break into poetry. You visited Iran? <laughs> I did. And I went first to, you know, I went to Shiraz. I visited Hafez's grave. Oh. Like, of course, poetry is it's a massive part yeah. of Iranian life. Yeah. Um, but the thing that struck me about Majid was that he had stopped himself from doing that. And it wasn't until like this huge trauma happened where his wife and his friends were literally killed by the government that that was when it came back to him and really supplied him with this source of power, actually. Yeah. yeah. You know, I suppose what I mean is like, would you be functioning the same if you didn't have something to kick against, do you think? What I feel like is like I have been doing this kind of work about fighting against bigotry, fighting against Islamophobia, against racism, fighting for immigrant rights and human rights. Um, I've been doing it for a while. And now... I feel like I'm doing it with a lead jacket on. You know what I mean? It feels like I ran a marathon and now they're like, now you're going to run four more marathons immediately Mm -hmm. after. And so it's not that that I didn't have something to kick against before. Because America's a work in progress, you know, we're always going to be tinkering and perfecting. Mm -hmm. And and it's, you know, it's at varying degrees, but that's what we're always going to be doing. When I spoke to Majid, I asked him about that, about keeping on functioning when um, when things are really hard. Well, you know, uh, Miva, everybody, you know, has uh, their own dramas. You know, like if you go through a separation or divorce, um, it's like a death, right? Mm-hmm. And it can happen to you. Yes, I had many tragedies in my life. This is poetry, you know, that um, gives me this hope and this optimism, you know, because it gives me 
something to express myself and make something good out of something tragic. So, Nagin, what about today's political climate? Do you think, is there some silver lining in that more people are going to like use, like in our case, comedy and, and writing as a way to express themselves and as a way to change things? You know, it's really exciting. I've literally never seen so many people riled up. Not since I was single. I'm married. No, <laughs> Um, but people are riled up but you know I this is a little yeah. bit off topic but like I think for a long time like comedians we get commended for bravery and I don't Which is see ridiculous. it a lot yeah. I really don't see it yeah. a lot you know yeah. like I was just reading about people in Syria like in southern Damascus who are managing to put out like this web series yeah you know against all odds yeah seriously like yeah. they're in Damascus Majid is a very prolific writer and one of the poems, it's one about like Mexican immigrants and he feels this affinity with them. The way he reads his poetry is that he has it on tape and he like listens to it and then and then says it, the line. So there's kind of an echo in the way he reads it. Um, so that's what you that's what you hear. To Mexican immigrants. That weekend on 4th Street where the number one meets the nine. It was only I who brought the two lines together. The line going downtown carried sleepy emigrant men to work. The other line turned around, taking maids to wealthy homes, and it dropped me off at a foothill. In the canyon, I constantly ask myself, when will these working families sit on the same line? October 29, 1986. Okay, so that was Majid Nafisi with his poem um, to Mexican immigrants. Do you find that at all? Like, do you think that you're either more open to other people's experiences because you're first generation or not? Oh, I think absolutely. And, I, you know, uh, you mentioned my book earlier, How to Make White People Laugh. Mm-hmm. And the opening chapter of that book is called I Used to Be Black. Before all of that, I grew up longing to be Mexican. I grew up in Palm Springs, California. I thought, um, I know Mexicans are not Iranians, but eh, they're close enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I feel like you sort of build a kinship around larger minority groups. You sort of glom onto them because you 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 want a peer group. You know, you... You walk into a room and notice who is brown and who isn't. It's Jeff like I go to... definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> he has we have that in common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, my fiance is African American. Um, and so, like, b- between the two of us, we're always just like, ding, 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 beep, beep, ding, ding, beep, you know, <laughs> have that like going in our heads, like hitting the brown people. <laughs> More immigration, art, politics, and comedy after the break. So let me introduce you to Linda Trang Dai. Yeah. She came here with her family in 1978. They escaped Vietnam by boat. The Vietnamese community calls her uh, the Vietnamese Madonna for great reason. So have a listen to Linda. 
I always loved to sing. I, I mean, I played the guitar. I would sing to Pet Manatar and Madonna. But when I came here, you know, I was influenced by, you know, all the American pop stars. I wanted to sing so bad and I just never give them. And I just went around and I just asked people if I can sing. I don't Where, care about in, in bars, in clubs, or I know this one band, Vietnamese band. I would follow them, and I would just want to sing so people would know me. Because um, back then, Vietnamese was very traditional. They only have the traditional music, and I wanted to break out and be the first, and like something where they're like, "Wow, you know, I've never seen before." <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> what's traditional Vietnamese music like? It's, it's very, you know, it's like country music. It's, you know, you don't wear sexy clothes, nothing wild and crazy like uh, pop music, right? right? So I wanted to bring that into the Vietnamese entertainment showbiz here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. so that we would climb up. You and I side by side in the sunshine, shining down on the beach where we lie. So... The reason I wanted you to hear this is because, um, first of all, she's an awesome character mm -hmm. and uh, she's super fun. But also what struck me is that like she has this freedom to express herself. She's super like sexy stage presence and she's really loud and boisterous. And like that's the opposite of what's expected of her back home. The thing that kind of strikes me about that is having to break through to your mother country the people from your mother country and also break through to the people here who are more recent immigrants who are more conservative, you know, than your now American experience, you mm -hmm. know. And I think early on when I was doing stand up and like talking about dating and like my vagina and whatever, <laughs> I, uh, I you love know, I was... that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that is really I love when you talk about dating and sex. It's so funny. I, and great. Yeah. Thank you. And, and it's unremarkable for an American comic to do that. Really. Right. Right. It's exactly. It's remarkable for a, for a mainstream comic to do that but when you add on this layer of like Iranian and Muslim it kind of changes the, di the dynamic I had been doing comedy in New York for a long time and then I went uh, for my first like out of town gig and the organizers of the gig invited a bunch of Iranians and so I'm like doing my stuff about dating and whatever and they it was crickets and tumbleweed mm. it was silence like it was painful Ugh. and I realized after like they just think it's shameful because I heard a woman literally say <laughs> that was shameful <laughs> for every Muslim person who feels that way there's like a hundred who don't you know but I also think that as much as uh, Americans you know need to embrace um, otherness um, so do ethnic groups you know what I mean like everyone mm -hmm. needs to work on their shit so sometimes that means you're own people are not your biggest fans. Yeah, I, th I think Linda actually came up against that too in the beginning. And then she found out that like a lot of her like videos and music was being passed around back in Vietnam. While there was this disapproval, there was also a big appetite for it. And I asked her about that. This one uh, famous MC, Nam Lop, he, uh, here in the US, um, he went back to Vietnam before I did. And he was like telling me the whole town would come to one house and watch it illegally. You're not allowed to watch it. It was censored. Yeah. So you have to sneak in and watch it illegally. But it's like, because in Vietnam, the reason they love to watch us is foreigner to them, right? Because you can watch 
Vietnamese singer over there is not illegal. But when something is banned, it's when they always want to. The more it's banned, the more they want it. So that's why they would love to watch us. So yeah, like, you might just, be you might be like the most American person I've ever met. Like I don't think anyone is more patriotic than I am in this in America. Yeah, I paint American flag on my toe. Can you imagine all those tiny stars? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I just want to ask you one last question, yeah. which is like um, the role that immigration has in the kind of creative life of the US. Like, is that something that you think about? Is that something that you can speak to? If you think about the 80s when there were Russians that were like playing the piano or whatever in the United States, there there was some kind of art exchange that started happening with, with between the Soviet Union and the United States. It was a big deal and it was mm-hmm. the first form of contact. You're sending your, your musicians, your artists. And so um, keeping that kind of openness between cultures, it only helps us. And in like allowing um, artists to come in and out and uh, and do shows and express and communicate. And it yeah. makes us more worldly and it makes us more knowledgeable and it gives us more empathy to other cultures and other ethnic groups and other racial groups. And so uh, that's the role it plays. It's really important. Nagin, thanks so much for joining me and for your wit and insight every day on Twitter and in your <laughs> podcast, Fake the Nation, which is so fun to listen to. It's like actually helps me understand what's happening. Where can people find you? Where's the best place for them to you find You know what? It? I would just go ahead and pick up a copy of How to Make White People Laugh yes. because yeah. it is uh, the Muslim uh, experience boiled into a book, but only the Muslim experience of this one Muslim. Yes. <laughs> <And> Namely, Nagin <laughs> Farsad. So after Nagin left the studio, I knew it was time for our Cheer Up Charlie segment. So I went full Irish. Cheer Up Charlie. It's St. Patrick's Day, so I called up one of our most beloved Irish immigrants here in the US, the writer and actor Chris O'Dowd. You'll know him from his run on Broadway in Of Mice and Men, or his star turn as the guy in Bridesmaids. Or if you're an eight-year-old child, and I'm sure we have a lot of eight-year-old child listeners, you'll know his amazing Moon Boy series of books that are so cute. Okay, here he is. Hello? (laughs) Hi, Chris. Hey there, how are you? I'm great. Chris, when did you move to America officially? I imagine that I properly here maybe three and a half years. Oh, that's that's only like six months longer than me, I think. Yes, but look at the impact I've made. (laughs) Obviously, I could go for the whole Hollywood thing if I wanted, but I'm holding down the East Coast and I feel like it's very underground here. This would be so beneath you. Do you feel like you live here because like it's where you work? Do you know what I mean? Like, or were you always like, I want to live in Hollywood or how would you class your immigration kind of? I think that's probably right. I'm I'm an economic migrant. I imagine if, mm-hmm. if I had a huge skill in mining, I'd be living in Western <laughs> Australia rather than America. <laughs> how do your politics, if at all, like bleed into your work? It's interesting. I've been thinking about it increasingly as I've been kind of settling down and having kids. And I, I find it hard to, I, first of all, I'm an, as well as my politics and I'm a kind of a bog standard liberal, I'm an atheist. Mm-hmm. So I find it hard to do roles where I feel God is triumphant all the time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I'm a pacifist, so I find it hard to do roles where I have to kill people. Oh. Or the use of guns is um, free and easy. But I saw um, you in um, in Of Mice and Men where you like nightly had to kill the woman, but it was like accidentally. Well, that's, I suppose, the most important word there. Woman. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously in my cement, it wasn't uh, a person of full mind doing a considered act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the only power an actor has is to say no, really. So you kind of just don't do the role if you feel like it's going to be something where it's, I'm killing people willy-nilly. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, you got offered I, oh, that. You got offered that movie. I'm killing people willy-nilly. <laughs> <laughs> willy-nilly, the adventure zone. What's your feeling now as an immigrant to the US? With you know, um, I mean specifically, I'm talking about it's St. Patrick's Week, and there's a big campaign going on at home where they're saying like Tishak, our prime minister, to bring the traditional bowl of shamrocks to the White House. They're kind of saying no, the Irish people should take a stand and not um, not do that. I mean, it's just so typically Irish that there's a debate about <laughs> a bowl of shamrock. <laughs> No. <laughs> no, it's really embarrassing. I know. Like, I, you know, in London, they're like, "Do we give him a state visit? <laughs> Do we allow Trump to be treated like a monarch?" And in Ireland, it's like, "Will we give the the bowl of shamrocks or not?" <laughs> but uh, okay, so if we do break it down and take the kind of silly symbolism yeah. away from it, I suppose it's a tricky one because the bowl of shamrocks—they're not giving it to Trump, right? They're giving it to the office of the President of the United States to and somehow instill a feeling of um, like, camaraderie between those two countries. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it feels like something of a impotent gesture to not do it. I think they should send him as a real act mm-hmm. of um, aggression, just a single potato. <laughs> 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 but you know what did get to me? I had just been speaking with like a Syrian asylum seeker when Paul Ryan came out with, you know, oh, I'm so proud of my Irish roots. And I was like, no, like, I don't want you representing oh. Ireland. Well, doesn't it, doesn't it feel like there's so many of them as well? Like, it hmm. feels like every person in, in that cabinet has a bloody Irish name. I know. Like Steve Bannon. Bannon, yeah. And Steve Bannon, I know it's like mean to say about people's looks or whatever, but like he does look so familiar to me from like... Totally. Old, He's in know. every bar in Ireland. Yes. And soon enough, we'll return there. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's, it's difficult when you're a country like Ireland that has so many millions of people here now. Yeah. They're, they're everywhere. It's not like... You can um, ascribe them a particular political party. There seems we could go through the Democratic Party probably and mm-hmm. say, "Oh, well, there's loads of people with Irish names in that." But the it Kennedys. just feels very. The, yes, the Kennedys. Where did they go? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Chris, thanks a million. Is there anything else you want to add? I just wanted to be clear that I don't like. I don't want any more migrants. <laughs> And happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. He was a Welshman who did very little. And he's famous for banning snakes from Ireland in a country that has never had snakes. Uh, I mean, come on. I can't believe I was engaged to him.
Well, he had a big staff. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to hang up. <laughs> OK. That's fair. Bye. Bye. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Maven America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Look Media. Today's episode was produced by Shayna Feinberg with help from Avishay Artsy, Eric Romero, Priyanka Srinivasan, Matt Chills, Lutal Malad, Julie Smith-Clem, Nick Bornstein, Naomi Westwater-Weeks and Pat Messina-Miller who wrote our theme music. Special thanks to KCORW and KUCI for letting us record in their great studios in LA. This show was engineered by Cameron Drews and Brian Pugh with music by Sending Letters to the Sea and Linda Trangdai. Check out our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Maven America. More immigration stories next week. And if you can't wait until then, you can hear me on one of my favourite podcasts. It's Sparkful. It's a really fun show that's not for foodies, it's for eaters. Myself and the host, Dan Pashman, he has the greatest laugh in the biz, by the way. We got Yemeni food together in Brooklyn and we talked about St. Patrick's Day and about immigration and just about food. You can hear it on sparkful.com.